As much as I am thankful that we have technology that allows us to live stream this worship service to all of you in your various homes, being here in this empty sanctuary on a Sunday morning is a little sad. This is not the way it is meant to be. Instead of propping open the front door and placing our big sandwich board uh, sign on the, on the corner, I'm more worried that I might have forgotten to lock the front door and someone might come in. All around us these days are disorienting images reminding us of the crisis we are facing. Since the two groups who share space with us in this building, Kavanaugh and Grupo Duego, stopped running their programs a few weeks ago, this building is essentially empty for uh, most of the week, for all week. And so I have actually been coming in uh, to my study most days. On my drive in, and on the way home, I pass several restaurants that would normally, normally be packed at various times, but are now empty all of the time. One restaurant in, particularly, in particular brings a wave of sadness every day I pass by. The street-facing front of this restaurant is sidewalk-to-ceiling windows very clear view into this restaurant. And every day I drive by and I see all the empty chairs flipped over and stacked on all of the empty tables. And almost every day that I drive by that, I am reminded of that poignant song from the musical Les Miserables, Empty Chairs at Empty Tables. I know that Many of us, if not all of us, have experienced times of sadness, of fear, of anxiety, or, or disorientation for ourselves, our loved ones, for our neighbors, and our world. First of all, I want to say no, that these feelings are perfectly reasonable responses to what we are experiencing. This is a time of great loss and great uncertainty. We should expect emotions matching the moment. But maybe even more importantly, in this sad and wearying time, through this morning's story, Christ reminds us that we are not alone. Christ himself is with us in an almost unimaginably real way. And Christ reminds us that we will one day all be together again, face to face. Certainly Christ understands our sadness and anxiousness. In our story from this morning, Jesus knows that his arrest, his torture, and his death by crucifixion are now just hours away. On top of that, Jesus knows that one of his best friends will turn him over to his enemies. We hear this in verses 20 and 21. 
When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve, and while they were eating, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. Matthew describes the impact that this revelation had on the disciples themselves in verse 22. He says that they were very sad and began to say to him one after another, surely not I, Lord. And it's a question, and I've always been confused why the other 11 besides Judas ask if it is them. I mean, don't they know what they're going to do or not? R.T. France, a British commentator, helped me to understand, I think, what is happening here. He writes that this word sorrowful, even very sorrowful, as he says, is a rather weak translation for a phrase which contains Matthew's favorite word for violent emotion, even shock. They are so shaken that they cannot even trust their own self-knowledge. And if that's what's happening for the disciples, think of how Jesus must feel. He has brought these 12 into his life and his work. He has loved them. He's taught them. He's shared meals with them for years. And now, one of these 12 will lead his enemies to him. And the other 11 will also abandon him as soon as he is arrested. Psalm 41, that Hebrew First Testament reading of ours, has often been associated with this story because of that same sense of betrayal and confusion that the psalmist shares. Again, just a few verses from this. My enemies are wishing the worst for me. They make bets on what day I will die. If someone comes to see me, they mouth empty platitudes, all the while gathering gossip about me to entertain the street corner crowd. These quote-unquote friends who hate me whisper slanders all over town. They form committees to plan misery for me. Even further, my best friend, the one I always told everything, he ate meals at my house all the time, has bitten my hand. This is Jesus' experience in our story as well, that deep betrayal. Jesus understands the depths of our sorrows and our anxieties because he experienced them. And still, Jesus invites all 12 of these betrayers to share in a meal in which he gives them even more of himself. Verses 26 through 28. While they were eating, Jesus took bread and gave thanks and broke it. He gave it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat. This is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. Again, even Judas. 
This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Matthew's telling of this story is so blunt and direct that even in more so than some of the other tellings, we are dramatically confronted with the almost incomprehensibility of Jesus's words. Eat this. This is my body. Drink this. This is my blood. Even in the face of their betrayals, Jesus is giving them love beyond comprehension. Dale Bruner writes this. Jesus commands his disciples to take him into their lives in this meal. He says, this is my body. This is my blood. Jesus could have said, this is my love, or this is my spirit, or this is my presence. And all these would have been true, but he wanted in this major means of communication to get physical, to be with us as earthly as possible, to save us from soul to toe, The Lord not only wants to tell his people, tell his people how much he loves them, he wants to embrace them with his love. The realism of the supper enables believers to appreciate how entirely Jesus wants to become one with us. Whatever else the Lord's Supper is, it is the sacrament of Jesus's love for us soul, and body. Now, because of Jesus' resurrection to new life just a few days after this supper and the arrival of the Holy Spirit a few weeks after that, Jesus is now truly with us always, everywhere we are, whether we're together or alone. Jesus is with us physically, in material as simple as bread and wine or juice. Jesus is with us spiritually in his words and his spirit. And so when I say this story reminds us that we are not alone, I don't mean that as cheap sentiment. I mean that Jesus, the risen anointed one, is with us. Jesus is with us here and now in this sanctuary, and Jesus is with you wherever you are and will be with us all, always. We may not be aware of this reality, but it is true. Therefore, the truth is, with Christ, there are never entirely empty spaces in our lives, even this sanctuary. Even this sanctuary is not empty this morning or on any morning. I don't think that most of you know this, but this is where I pray for you. I come in midweek, usually Wednesday. I sit in a pew and I pray through my list. And as I go through these prayers, I look around this space, and I know where almost every one of you sit 
on a Sunday morning. And you are here with me. I also know where others who were here before you used to sit. And they are here with me. And most of all, I know that God is with me. And I am not alone. Just as you are not alone, now or ever. The other great truth this story calls us to attend to is the truth that one day we will all be together again face to face. Jesus has a wonderful world for us all, just as this supper ends. He says, I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until... That day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. In this is our ultimate hope, not for the near future alone, but for always. As Dale Bruner puts it, Jesus does not look, to, look forward to the last day as a time when he will be alone. This is one more way for Jesus to say how much he loves us. He says, essentially, my greatest expectation is the meal we will have together. I can hardly wait. It would do us a great deal of good, Bruner continues, if our future could be dominated by hope of the coming kingdom. It is worth praying for this hope. Without the horizon of the brand new hope, our lives collapse too drastically into the narrowness of the present, and we mainly fear the future. We have a birthright to the life of hope, and we have been living too long on the slim rations of careerism and our own hopes. Jesus's doctrine of hope is one of the main needs of the church. Dale Bruner wrote that decades ago. We need this hope now more than ever. The following poem that I'm going to read from John Blaze poignantly expresses <clears throat> our present moment and our present need. It's called The Greatest of These. Until your te tears have fermented, they're only water, easily mistaken for raindrops. But should you endure the season, your grief might turn to wine. Your sadness might become the spirit others will travel far and wide to taste. Know that the season is often long, the weather harsh and inappropriate. There are no guarantees. Only hope, wait, and see remain. And the greatest of these is hope. In this strange time, know that we are not alone. 